Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to the Bees Tactical Podcast, where we try to get under the bonnet of all things tactical and statistical at Brentford. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined by my co-host David Anderson as Bees Tactical's pair of false nines, too diminutive to be target men and not creative enough to play as tens. David, how are you doing? Hey, hi John, how are you doing? Yeah, really good, thank you. Yeah, I'm okay. I, I actually did play as a both as a, a, a nine and a ten during my inauspicious playing career, so... I, I take umbrage to our intro, but that's fine. <laughs> Similar here, I was a, um, a diminutive left winger and then played up front for a little bit. And then yeah. my latter career moved backwards from 10 position to centre mid. So, yeah, there's yeah, something same. there in there for me as well. Yeah, as a, I played for my university team, actually, as a striker. And then um, eventually, like doing during grad work, played played college football and ended up playing as a central midfielder as well. So there we are. Not just not just pretty faces, and um, <laughs> yeah, there's so many people who think that ta- tactics and stats people are not good footballers. But you know, we, hopefully we will uh, be able to dispel that myth. Yeah, anyway, absolutely. it's the first Bees Tactical podcast. How it are you is. feeling about this? It is. It's exciting, isn't it? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. It's um, yeah, it's a new thing that's going on. It's um, podcasting for Bees Tactical. This um, it should be really good. Yeah, can't wait mm. to get chewed into bees. Mm. So just a brief episode outline what we're going to do today is we're going to focus on october so we're just going to look at the months see what's happened for brentford uh, answer a few of your questions and focus on a few of the topics that that we've drawn up as potential uh, talking points for the month so david basic question how do you feel october went for brentford it was a busy month it felt very very sort of condensed um started off a long time ago the preston fixture which was on the uh, 3rd of october now sorry 4th of October and um, it feels like a a lifetime ago it feels like a really really long time ago there was a bit of a gap after the Preston game until the 17th with internationals Um, lots of players for Brentford playing a couple of fixtures which added to the workload and then between the 17th and the 31st sort of 14 days there were there were five fixtures so it's a busy month of six fixtures plus internationals and it's really felt like it just from watching these games, sort of analysing them, watching them back. I can't even begin to man- sort of imagine how it must have felt for the players, let alone let alone us watching it. But um, yeah, it's been a really busy month. I, th- I think it's been a good month, actually. Some big 
sort of downsides and big lows have probably mm. made it feel worse than it actually is. Uh, sort of the big defeat to Preston, um, the big defeat to Stoke, and then a late uh, equaliser against Norwich has probably swayed in a way sort of the big bad beats instead of making it feel like a, as good a month as it has been because it has been a good month if you sort of look at the form table for six um, the six games in October uh, Brentford are sort of riding quite high on there they're in sixth position um, don't concede the late goal against Norwich and uh, it could be a couple of points further up and Norwich could be down so uh, it's been a busy month but it's been a good month where we probably quite learned quite a bit about the team and performed fairly well as well yeah and you might be disappointed about your position in the table especially when you look at a lot of the xg um x points tables which uh, just yeah. basically take the expected goals for and against and, and work out some kind of algorithm for the likelihood of wins and then divvy out points on that basis putting you largely um high up the table um how do you feel about the 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 fact that I, once again brentford have maybe not started off as as quickly out of the blocks as you might have hoped, um, given that obviously the underlying numbers aren't that bad. Well, yeah, Brent, most Brentford fans now are used to the underlying numbers being good and sort of the league table, <laughs> league table position not reflecting that. But uh, starting poorly is something that Brentford are quite used to too. Um, it happened last season. I think early on in the season, just lots of good chances missed, and it's it's quite normal now. So. You have to kind of look at these, um, look at these sort of predictions and projections, and then the XG tables, and realise that you're doing the right things. Um, things are happening, and just hopefully, performances can align with underlying performance uh, as quickly as possible. Well, let's run through those games quickly. Then you mentioned that the first game um, was the, the of October was Sunday, the fourth of October against Preston. Um, that was a game I think was quite interesting in that you went 2-0 up in the first half and then uh, you sort of got sucker punched a little in the second um, half. Uh, you were missing Rico Henry, um, Norgard obviously got injured early on and that sort of set you back. Um, and I, I suppose that, that is one of those games where you'll look back on and think we should have won that one, no problems. Yeah, potentially. There was a, there was a sort of, the game started okay, but... Um... Really, a two-goal lead probably flattered Brentford, and I think it soon came around, it soon transpired, as soon as Norgard went off injured, that what was going wrong was just sort of exacerbated by how well Preston were playing. And a 2-0 lead did flatter us, and I think Preston caught up quite quickly. And then it was it was a bit of a collapse defensively, sort of three big chances conceded, and, and Preston took them all. And before we knew it, um, Preston were ahead, and it was, um, it was a disappointing day. But tactically, Preston got it right. I think seeing Alex O'Neill, uh, sorry, Alex Neal now, He's played Frank a few times and stuck in this division for a while. He's one of these coaches that do get how to play against Brentford. And Fortune probably favoured them a little bit with um, the confusion that happened after Norgard left the field and Jensen moving into a deeper position. But they took their chances well and it was um, sort of a defensive collapse from Brentford more than anything. I suppose it raises questions about how central Norgard is if if he can go off and the, the team falls apart like that. Definitely, it does, it does. Although, as the, game, as the sort of month has progressed... There's definitely been an indication that Yanelt, for instance, a new signing, has come in and um, there's, there's not so much reliance on him. I think that first game was a bit of a shock, but they've probably worked hard off the field since then and looked a lot more compact and better. And uh, it sort of bores out in the numbers defensively as the season, as a sort of month went on. And then following that, you had a, a two-win home win against Coventry. Uh, Ricker Henry was back, um, which obviously made... A difference, and that that win was followed then by a two-one away win at Sheffield Wednesday, um, which you covered in in depth with Peter. Um, and if anyone hasn't listened to that podcast episode yet, then do head over and listen to that. Um, I think the biggest 
the biggest um, happening from from these two games is that Pontus Janssen got injured um, in the 50th minute of the Sheffield Wednesday game. And I think that's had a fairly big impact on the rest of the month. Yeah, I think so. So it's um, it was a bit of a blow, actually. Um, sort of everyone's sort of big intake of breath seeing Pontus go off injured because of how heavily he was relied upon last season. He's a really important player, um, solid at the back, and yeah, sort of misconceptions about Brentford. This great attacking team, but it's actually a real solid defensive structure with Pontus and Ethan Pinnock at the heart, and Norgard sat in front that was sort of underpinned a lot of the good run last season. So to see him go off was. A little nerve-wracking. Um, but the team have rallied, actually, and it's probably underestimated how well they did. So just a quick... So we're bringing this now. So Ponta Janssen's injury sort of went off in the 50th minute. And we were looking at sort of chances conceded with and without Janssen. So per 90, Brentford are conceding 1.04 XG around that. And without Janssen per 90, 0.5. So it's a combination of things. It could be sort of opponents, it could be position. But we're actually not doing as bad without Janssen as um, a lot of people would perceive. And... Somehow the team's come together. And I think this is probably the, the improvement of Yanelt and uh, some of the others getting to grips in the midfield as well. And slightly weakening of opposition, but whatever's happening, uh, the, the reliance on Janssen isn't quite as much as it was mm. last season. And obviously Mads Sorensen is the player who's been brought in to cover um, f- for Janssen. There, there was a, a brief experiment with Charlie Good. I think we'll talk about that later. But uh, I guess my, my question is, in a, in a back four, which seems to be the system which works best for you, at least as far as October was concerned. Um, how would you compare mm. the difference between Janssen and Pinnock as, uh, from the difference between um, um, Pinnock and, and Sorensen? How do you assess the the relationship between those two centre-backs? Because I think centre-back pairings are quite important in that respect. Have you got any comments that you think would um, inform that debate? The main thing about the pair is um, Mansbeck Sorensen and Ethan Pinnock are both left-footed heavily left footed it's their strongest foot and I know you've done some things recently and spoken about um, sort of how players react when they receive the ball on their stronger and weaker feet and moving it out of those feet and what happens next and Mads is he's a big guy he's a cumbersome guy he's not um, he's not delicate and intricate he's the complete opposite so forming a partnership with Ethan Pinnock he will be on the left-hand side and Ethan Pinnock, the more experienced player, moves on to the right because he's obviously better and more experienced at using his weaker foot and slightly less reliant on his stronger foot than than Mads. But if you think about Pontus Janssen and Ethan Pinnock, there's perfect balance off the right foot and off the left foot. Both of them can play progressive balls. They can spread the ball out wide quickly. It can take sort of move it first time. So from a defensive point of view, um, you're on your stronger side. So that's what you prefer as a defender. You prefer to be on your right and you prefer to be on your left. But Mads coming in, he is playing on his stronger side. So it's Ethan Pinnock that's been the one who's, the one who's put out a joint a little bit. And he is uh, Brentford's, easily breast, Brentford's best defender, sort of awareness, uh, sniffing out danger. And he's he's actually surprisingly good on the ball as well, probably taking for granted a little bit too. So the, the ideal combination would be a right footer with a left footer as a pairing. Mads coming in slightly alters that. But what he loses is sort of progression. He makes up for sort of tenacity, getting his head on things, um, sort of anticipation and just clearances. I think he's a lot more proactive in just getting rid of the ball. So Pontus is a big loss, but at the moment it's working. And uh, yeah, as just in the numbers are sort of XG conceded per 90 with and without Janssen. Mads is doing quite well coming in. So long may it continue. And obviously the the offshoot of that was the fact that um, you ended up playing a different system against Stoke on the 24th, um, which ended up being a, a defeat, a two, a three defeat away at Stoke. Um, you switched to a 3-4-3 three, three 
you brought in Charlie Good as as a centre back, and that experiment really didn't work, and you shifted back to four three three at half time. Um, what was your takeaway from the the Stoke game away? Stoke was a huge eye opener for everyone. I think it was it was a real big concern in terms of the sort of shape and um, what was going wrong on the field. So. It was Frank's reaction to uh, sort of losing Janssen. He thought, how could, I, how could I prevent this from sort of affecting the entire team? And what he did was he changed the shape of the entire back line. So Good came in on the right of the centre-back, uh, of a back three. Uh, Pinnock played in the centre and Mazbek Sorensen was on the left. So already, if you're thinking about sort of the build-up phase of football, you're, you're kind of limited by Mazbek Sorensen being in the left-back position. Ethan Pinnock is one-footed in a sense and not as strong on his right side and then you've got Goud coming in making his sort of league debut on the right and it wasn't working and then you sort of reduce a midfielder from those that situation because you're you're swapping a central midfielder for a defender and you've all of a sudden got three players who are all kind of uncomfortable in that first phase of football looking for just two players in the next line in the midfield line when normally we'd have three working together and sort of rotating so it was it was really poor it was probably some of the worst we've seen of Brentford in terms of progression and build-up in probably a, quite a long time, in about a year, and it was it was quite disappointing to see. And Stokes' block was just perfect. They were um, The front two were pressing those um, three players, and then there was five behind just that mid-block that was completely unpenetrable, and anything that came towards them was snuffed out by Stoke, and they kept breaking away. Anything Brentford did on the wings was easily snuffed out, and um, a lot of it did go down Charlie Good's side on that right with either Dalsgaard caught out position or Good trying to trying to make amends and not being quite quick enough. So it was poor in many respects, and sort of the difficulties we showed in why we suit a playing a four three three, and um, why we hope we don't see much of this three four three again. Mm. And obviously, you're quite critical of Charlie Good after the, after the game. Um, Good is an interesting one because he's he's sort of a little bit of a darling of the of the analysts who who have always pipped him to make this move or this sort of move. How are you feeling about Charlie Good now after the Stoke defeat? I'm slightly concerned actually. I think him coming in, sort of being plucked from the lower leagues, you'd expect. Yeah, there's, there's a few injury concerns that are sort of behind the scenes, and we're not entirely sure about what they are, and uh, it's kind of been kept under wraps, but. The idea of him coming in is to sort of support Janssen. So you keep the same system. He comes in as a Janssen understudy and steps in and things don't change too much. But with Janssen going off injured and seeing the entire sort of shape of the defensive line pulled up, it was a bit of a concern. And Frank did blame a little bit of it on the midfield and uh, not being able to field enough midfielders through injuries. And But I, I didn't entirely believe him with that. I think um, that was a bit of a cop-out. It's more they probably didn't trust Charlie Good in a pair with Ethan Pinnock. I'm not sure he was ready for that. So it didn't work and um, Good didn't come off it in, sh- in a shining light and he hasn't actually featured since. He's been sort of firmly fixed on the bench and, and Mads has come in actually and looked a lot better and a lot more sort of composed and more experienced actually too. Mm. It's interesting as well because uh, Sorensen was um, away on loan at AFC Wimbledon last season um, which suggested that you know of the two you would expect Good to start ahead of Sorensen. So um, are you just assuming now that, that that order has been reversed? Or do you think that was always the order that Frank had in mind? Yeah, possibly. I, I think I would say now that um, as this as this period has gone on, it's Mads has established himself as the third centre back. Oh, that's without doubt. Now he definitely looks like he's he's the one that that will step into either position if Pinnock's injured or if Janssen's injured. So. He's done really well. He's um he's kind of taken to the to the league well. I, I'm not 
whether it's that we've had a few games that have really suited him and um, we've not put him under too much pressure, we'll see. But at the moment, everything looks really good with him. And he's um, he's also posing a good attacking threat too with his long throws, which is which is great to see. He's um, sort of if there's any if there's a throw in the final third, he's straight up there on the wings and um, pinging the ball in right into the sort of trying to get it underneath the crossbar or into the front post for a flick on and a sort of high value chance. So liking a lot of what he's bringing to the team in both defensive and attacking aspects at the moment. How worried are you that the uh, Brentford team unable to really work the three four three at the moment? Is it simply a case of wait until Janssen's back and then maybe try it again, or do you think that the three four three experiment is is one that won't happen again this season? Uh, well, I ho- I kind of hope so. It, it doesn't suit our team. I think we don't really have the personnel to play it right. Um, I think if we sort of look at other teams that play something like that, a lot of what you're getting is in that first line the defenders are very sort of attack minded they're, they're good on the ball they, they can do multiple things and um, it doesn't look like we've got the right personnel in the right places to make it work so hopefully that is the last we see of it unless there's a sort of severe emergency mm. it's interesting isn't it because um, I think Stoke were playing 3-4-3 as well and I'm always a bit wary of 3-4-3 versus 3-4-3 it just ends up being a little bit stodgy but even even with that um, reality, you know, the fact that 3-4-3 versus 3-4-3 basically results in a man-marking game, um, it didn't really seem quite as stodgy. And I guess that's a, a worry for the defence as well, especially for Good. If if you can't even keep it sort of tight defensively with with players matched up man for man across the field, then, then maybe there's a little bit of a worry there. Yeah, that is a huge concern. You'd think that good to be able to perform in that system he played in the back three for his previous team Northampton um, and a lot of what he did actually was bringing the ball out of defence so defending defensive responsibility was sort of taken off him a little bit and he was playing in sort of a ball a ball dominant team and he was quite aggressive in his positioning so it's not looking great for him at the moment um, we need him to sort of turn around and become a valuable member of the squad so Let's see how he gets on. It might be that he just needs a few more weeks training-wise to um, to sort of get up to speed. But yeah, the signs aren't great at the moment. Well, from the Stoke defeat then, you moved into um, a big game on the Tuesday against Norwich. Obviously, Norwich are up there in the Championship as, as one of the, the title challengers will be considered as such. They've got some uh, fantastic talent on their team. They've managed to keep hold, keep hold of Emmy Buendia and Todd Cantwell over the summer. Um, and... I guess on the f- on the face of it, a one-one draw with Norwich is not the worst result. But I sense that you felt a little bit disappointed about this result. I think it was hugely disappointing, actually. Um, in the big scheme of the month, it probably is okay because you're looking at playing one of the best two, three teams in the league and coming out of it with a draw, like you said. But in terms of sort of dominance throughout the game and how much they were suppressed and how how good Brentford were, sort of in all-round game, sort of defensively as well, back to the back four system. And taking the lead early on and looking to control the game and really stifling Norwich. So there weren't any clean shots. It was very much sort of speculative stuff from the outside of the box. Nothing really connecting well, a few headers and corners. And then to just be sucker punched so late in the 87th minute, it was hugely disappointing. And even that effort was sort of going wide and deflected back on target. So disappointing in terms of that was another couple of points dropped and how much dominance there was over the best team, one of the best teams in the league. But in the big scheme of things, a draw, I think, would just about take that. Mm. Yeah, and then you rounded out the month with a nice routine win um, away at Luton. Um, again, as, as you said to me before we came on, just sort of a nice finish to the month. You you weren't really caused any trouble by by Luton at all, and um, as you say, it was it's, it was nice to to end the month that way. Um, just looking at the October form table, then 
actually quite interesting to see that i mean yourself finished sixth overall per form in the month of october but the teams that you you had those results against so the stoke stoke city mm. f- um had a better run of form than you did as did norwich so both of those go- games i think at least need to be contextualized by that um i suppose um you you, you could take the the preston game um uh, give or take obviously Preston the, the sort of team that, that caused those sorts of upsets against teams like um, uh, Brentford I, they caused Leeds problems last season mm. for example so I guess again that's another one to sort of contextualise but looking at that form table for the for the month um, what stands out to you is that, is that do you feel hugely disappointed to have only um, managed to be the sixth best team perform for October? Uh, no, no, I think I think we're okay with it actually. I, I'd look at that and think it's been it's been a good month. Um, yeah, sort of fine margins in a couple of games where sort of the team has looked poor or sort of a bit of a brain fart against Stoke. It could have been quite different. So I, I, I don't know. I, I think just looking at sort of the underlying numbers, cumulative XG was good. Uh, 10, uh, 10 XG4 against is um, uh, it's just around five. So yeah, looking, yeah, so far coming out of October is like a 67% ratio team. Brentford are looking quite strong and there's not really too many holes to pick. The squad's been tested. I think that's probably quite a good way to judge this. Um, if someone said to you sort of the key players like Janssen and Norgard missing for large periods whilst also um, sort of embedding in new players without Ben Rama and Watkins and then sort of finishing that main chunk of busy fixtures and as high as we did, uh, largely it's positives. And I think there are many more positives to draw from that period than the mm. negatives. Yeah, you've mentioned uh, losing Watkins and Ben Rama, but one of the things that I love about Brentford is that, you know, you'll sell on your players like like those two and then bring in mm-hmm. players like uh, Ivan Tony and um, Marcus Force as well um, might be a good time to talk about them at the at the end of the month in terms of Marcus Force has scored five uh, four goals sorry from five shots uh, which is pro- probably a little bit unrealistic to expect um, as a as a consistent uh, run of form but Ivan Tony nine goals from 24 shots um how how happy were you to see both of these players coming in and and replacing the goals that have been taken away from you in Watkins and Ben Rama? Yeah, I think relieved is also a big thing. I think mm. <laughs> um, Ben Rama and Watkins were goal machines. They were they were sort of dangerous in front of goal. Worked really hard, and a big part of the system and a big part of what made Brentford look so good last year was the sort mm. of the work and the rotations of those two players. So. Bringing in new players is always going to be daunting um, and how well they can adapt because you don't really have time to bed in players in this league. If you sort of, It's probably silly to say that, actually. I think if you start slowly, you can catch up. But the sooner your players can get it and sort of be made to look at home, the better. And Tony especially has looked at sort of... He looks like a Premier League player, let alone a um, championship. His positioning is really good. He's, sort of, he's going to get good chances for this Brentford team. Um we might sort of talk about finishing skill and whether it does exist, but there's a technique to sort of directing things on goal. And um, a player that might come up a bit later, Sergi Canos, doesn't direct things on goal well, whereas Tony does. Um, so they've been really good, yes, yeah. And the sort of cameos of Force has been really interesting as well. A lot of people may have thought that Force would have gone out on loan again just to get sort of a full season of football. But uh, it kind of looks like the, the, the model's been quite clever here and thought, let's keep him around because... If anything does happen to Tony, we have another player that looks absolutely ruthless in front of goal. Forces on sort of 
80% conversion rate of, not, of non-penalty chances. It's um, pretty out of this world. He's on sort of 3.27 goals per 90 if he carries on with this. So these are these are completely unsustainable numbers. But what he is doing, he's relieving a bit of pressure when he does come on the field that mm. if a chance does come his way, he can turn a game uh, sort of the direction that you need or he can sort of cement a win and make it a little bit more comfortable towards the end. So... Really impressive. And then in terms of the wider expected uh, underlying numbers, the expected goal um, numbers looking at various game states is quite interesting. Um, I, I don't know if you wanted to talk us through that, but um, the, the the figures that I'm looking at is that in terms of when you're winning and drawing, you're absolutely dominant. And even when you're losing in terms of productive side of things, you're still creating more than you're conceding. So how, how do you feel about the, the underlying numbers pointing towards Brentford actually being quite good this season. Yeah, this is also key as well. I think it's a good point to stress. Um, Brentford aren't too high on the table. The actual table is probably a little bit disappointing position-wise, but it could have been slightly different. But when you start to sort of draw into the mechanics of what's underpinning performance and is is this going to improve and, and you're looking at sort of forecasts saying Brentford are one of the top two, sort of top, top two, three teams... It's because of the sort of intentions at different states of the game. So we might talk about this a little bit more in future episodes. But a better judgment of what a team does is what it's doing when you're winning and when you're drawing and when you're losing. So Brentford sort of have really good impetus when the game's tight, generated 6.8 expected goals and then conceded 3.5. So as the game's nil-nil or sort of 1-1 or those situations, Brentford is sort of showing and taking the impetus and trying to actually win these games and turn it into a winning position. And also when Brentford are ahead, it's not so much just uh, sort of a low block and sitting through these. The intent is to keep going again. So 6.3 goals whilst winning, uh, expected sort of at that state of the game and conceding 1.4. So it's largely positive, really, really positive in terms of what this team's doing and um, its intentions to attack and win matches. Mm. We should address some of the questions that your listeners have sent in. Um, a lot of these questions, I think, were quite tactical. So we've already talked about the the differences between um, playing four three three and three four three. We could maybe touch on that a little bit more, but let's just cover um, some of the questions that were sent in. So Lewis Sluman um, has sent in the question: If we were to change formation, what formation and what eleven do you think would be best? So this is, I guess, a good uh, a good excuse for you to talk about those tactical differences between the four three three and the three four three. Yeah, so it's, this is quite a good question, actually. I think this is born from the sort of frustrations about um, about the team and um, sort of trying, maybe trying to get force Antonio onto the same pitch. Um, mm. They're so good. Is there a way that you could do that? And other teams are doing this with two forwards, so. Brentford do like having two wide wingers because of the sort of the positions they can get into, like the half spaces and cutting in short balls and creating better chances. They don't really believe in two forwards because a lot of what happens or what can happen is both of these forwards can do their best work outside of the outside of the box. They could be running the channels and there's no one sort of to cross into and it, it doesn't work as well and there's not as much balance on the team. But yeah, it's quite an interesting question. But I, th- I think we should address that 4-3-3 is definitely the best formation for this team. But a better way to probably answer it would be, what should what should a secondary formation be? If there are other solutions to solve, mm. if there are other teams that come up in, like the Stoke block. And this is probably why Frank went with the 3-4-3, because he knew what Stoke would do. So he probably felt quite excited to bring this system out and try and win a game back against them. But instead of a 3-4-3, maybe a 3-5-2, just get an extra body in midfield, sacrifice something up front and go a little bit more direct at times, have the ball progression with the with the extra numbers in midfield. You can have the you can still have an inverted pyramid, sort of one holding and two two eights in front. 
and you don't lose anything in midfield but you sacrifice sort of a little bit in the forward line and you expect the width to come from your wing back so there are other things you can do but I, I think that's a better way to answer this the secondary formation we should maybe looking at a 3-5-2 now and losing some of the principles that we try and stand by because trying to build up and do everything we did in a back three is harder so we need a better option and maybe two forwards in a 3-5-2 might do that and you can still play Forson and Tony in in a front three as well because that's what happened against Stoke I believe Um, I think Ivan Tony actually made a really nice really nice assist three to force for the first goal yeah that was um it was it was nice to see actually those two combining I think that's what's given Lewis a little glint in his eye because he's seen that and he's thinking can this be more of a sort of fixed structural system and we try and actually play with those two working together and they are two intelligent footballers I think they can we've seen more of Tony dropping deep but if to putting all your eggs into one basket, I think playing Force and Tony on the same pitch, if anything does happen to them, then you're kind of sort of looking into the B team in the under-23. So there's probably a little bit more thought in who you're giving minutes to. Um, do they both need to be on the same team at the same time? And is there other creative outlets without them? So my thinking is we need a better secondary system, which could involve the two of them mm. to support the the four-three-three. It's interesting hearing this debate from the perspective of, of being a Leeds fan because I think mm. with, when it comes to structures and formations with Leeds, we know that the Bielsa basically builds his formations around the opposition structure. Um, and so he, he sort of has this plus one at the back, minus one up front in terms of his pressing patterns and any man marks across the rest of the system. So I do, I do find it fascinating because we don't really... I don't think we would even talk about like what's our best formation as as leads. We would sort of say, well, if the opposition is playing a front two, then we'll have a back three, and if the op- op- opposition is playing a, uh, a back three, then we'll maybe have a front two. Um, and and so I guess there's there's a, a sense in which you know there's a little bit more fluidity, and obviously Bielsa likes to have. Um, adaptability as a as a trait amongst his players I wonder whether or not you think that Frank would ever be that that sort of way inclined and 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 think of you know a back three as a as a response to two striker systems that are playing against his own team whether or not you think that he just wants to have a different way of approaching a game so he can flip between the between a plan a and a plan b as it were yeah no you've touched on a really good point there he has mentioned this previously and I think this is his his ideal would be to have two functioning systems where you did have three center backs which gave you the man up against the back two and um, sort of one over and I think he was probably personally a lot let down by what happened at Stoke because he was quite trusting and giving Goud that chance to play in this back three and it and it didn't work at all. So there's a lot of work to do, but Frank is a stubborn manager and he sort of resolutely will stick to the 4-3-3 even against teams it might not work against. So he sticks to his laurels and it's we very rarely see him changing things in a, in a way that would surprise you. He's quite a predictable manager. But... I think there is something in there with him wanting a sort of secondary system of a back three, definitely there. But whether he still has the personnel to execute it is that's where we're probably falling down. But I'd, I wouldn't put it past him. No, this is where I think that's where he wants to go. Mm. Alex Morris has asked a similar question, so talking about um, whether or not. Uh, Frank should be more adaptable and look to play two strikers up front. But he also says he would like to hear your thoughts on uh, Fosu having a much more involved role and utilising Sergi uh, Canos at right back for cover. Um, we'll talk about Sergi Canos next, I think. But let's let's just um, reiterate what you think about the the two strikers up front um, approach. Yeah, as an as a secondary system, I think to to get back into games or. Or if there is a sort of back five you're playing against, having two central fixed forwards and 
trying to sort of move out centre backs, having two centre forwards sort of focus on them and and move them out of positions is quite interesting. Um, I don't think it should be the primary formation. I, I wouldn't ever agree with that. I think the four three three is always going to be, but there should be some adaptability, and I think Frank does want it. I think he's just slightly let down by his players at the moment. But who knows? As the season progresses, we might see it. But it's um it's definitely something good to it's good to bring up, and it's something we should be thinking about. But whether we'll see it sooner or later is um is another question. And uh, Fossu was the other part of that one, wasn't it? It was quite interesting. Um, yeah. So Fossu is a yeah. We, we will go into Sergio a little bit later, but Fossu is a player that. Uh, played he sort of supported the BMW last year so when if, and either of those weren't playing mm. sort of the wide players he would come in and it, he was he was involved in a really successful period for Brentford he um he got himself a goal he was involved in sort of setting up others and he was he- yeah he was involved in the run in that got Brentford to the playoff final so a lot of people are looking around and thinking what's happened to him why why is he sort of dropped down and why is he not why is he so far away from getting time on the pitch and it's yeah, maybe he should be more involved. But yeah, as we'll go into with Sergi, there could be a reason why he's sort of fallen back in the pecking order. We'll um, we'll pick that up in a bit. Sticking to the tactical side of things, I guess the other interesting uh, aspect of, of your system at the moment is the is the central midfield. And we've we've talked about um, Norgard a lot this um, podcast. But what we haven't talked about is the role of the two central midfielders ahead of him. Um, Macon Leary has a question. Has the role of the two central midfielders ahead of Norgard changed this season? My sense is that they don't overload the flanks as much. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think this is a really good observation, actually. It's quite interesting. And I think it's probably tied back to something I just touched upon then. Brentford last season, um, I, th- I think you look back now, the sort of the structure of the, the Norgard holding in the two eights in front and then the wide forwards coming inside and Watkins uh, Watkin sort of pulling out left. It was really clear and it was really precise in what it was doing and it was functioning. And you could see the rotations through the TV, but you could see them clearly, sort of players moving on to the right or the left, the central midfielders or the two eights and overloading those wings. It was very, very ob- ob- sort of obvious in its patterns. And um, we would see sort of Justice Silva drop into the left back position and then another player rotate inside. It was, it was, it was almost like clockwork and it was, it was just clear and obvious. And I think what's happened this season is... There's been a couple of new players. Um, Norgard has been injured. You've embedded Janelt. Uh, Jensen sometimes played defensive midfield. So the clear systems in that midfield three aren't quite there. I, I think that the overloading of the wings does still happen. It's still, a, it's still a primary form of attack. I just don't think they're as obvious when you're looking for them. But I think that the intentions are still there and they're still happening. But yeah, roles are definitely similar from, from my perspective. I'm just not sure they're being executed as well. And mm. add to that, you now have sort of Canos playing instead of Benrama um, and Buemo not quite firing as much as he was last year. The subtle, the subtle movements aren't just quite as clear to see. But I don't think that's. Um, I don't think that the, the intention has gone. That's still a still a primary way to attack. Mm. And I guess the important overriding message that should be coming through. Um, is that when we are in an unprecedented time for football in that we haven't really seen this sort of thing happen before in that we had a lockdown for a long time and then finished off the second half of the season or the, uh, the second third of the season then had a shortened summer in the wrong period to, to what we're usually expecting and so there's a lot of teams that are still really coming to terms with with where they're at as as a group of players but also in terms of their fitness and and etc uh, etc et and i think a lot of people don't realize just quite how important um priming players for performances is 
until we've got to this season where you're watching the the Premier League and you're think, you're thinking well, how on earth are mm. Aston Villa beating Liverpool seven two and then you're thinking why is it that you know why is it that um, Brentford's midfield isn't firing yet a lot of it I think comes down to that as well yeah completely agree yeah some good points there we we have to talk about Sergi Canos um, Chris Adams on Twitter gives a question can you show some data from Sergi Canos as to the performance indicators pre-injury in this season seems to be a very loud social media following hammering him at the moment is there any reason to be questioning selection or people like sheep I know you've done a lot of uh, you've done a lot of um, research into this so I'll hand this one over to you I will do yeah thank you yeah, I've had a little look but before I do John just give us your perspectives with Sergi because I think that's probably quite important just um just maybe as someone who hasn't seen him as much, sort of week in, week out, and just your actual perception of him. And then I think that will probably feed mm. into well what um, what I've sort of uncovered. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Sergi Canos was a player who was linked with Leeds for a, for a time in between mm. the sort of the end of the 18-19 season and then the beginning of the 19-20 season. I know that Andrea Radrizzani did that thing he does where he drops in <laughs> hints that we were interested in players and Sergi Canos was one of those. And whether or not that has got much to do with the fact that you beat us... Um, at at the uh, Griffin Griffin Park, I've got completely. It was Griffin Park, yeah, yeah, yeah it, was, it was, yeah. Um, um, and I think you know that obviously the the fact that Leeds sort of fell away and Brentford were were sort of coming on strong at the end of the season, I think that um, probably influenced things. But watching him through October, I can see why fans would be frustrated by him. Um, but I also don't think he was as bad as. I think a lot of fans will have thought that he is. I, I know that this is probably something that happened. I mean, look, I'm I'm I support a club that plays Pat Bamford week in week out, and you know he goes from he goes from unless he's not scoring, he's the worst player ever to you know scoring hat tricks and now being in contention for England selection. It's it it's that's that's just how back and forth fans go on these things. Um, I would be a little bit more neutral on on Canos. I can see why the frustration is there um for someone who plays in a front three he's probably not productive enough um but at the same time i think as you'll say you know there's there are aspects to his game that are really important and um uh, i guess just anecdotally from from um the game yesterday someone like jack harrison for leeds um, mm. when in their loss against leicester city um if you look at him in terms of his production then yeah you know maybe not the best game that he's had in the premier league this season but if you look at his pressing figures and his defensive work and the, just the amount of ground he covers, he's absolutely fundamental to um, the system that we play. So um, I would be, I, I guess I would just, my, my response to your question would be, one, you've got to determine what role you think Sergi Canos is playing in Thomas Frank's team. And two, you've then got to have to assess how well you think he's playing that role. And that's what the the decisions about his fit for for Brentford should be rather than has he scored enough goals does he have a tendency not to hit the target enough etc etc yeah that's really interesting assessment I I think um uh, just looking at Chris's question Sergi Canos probably falls in between sort of the social media people hammering him are they right and is there sort of a a pantomime villain sort of Mm. aspect to this and I think he probably gets the the abuse that Bamford does, but he's probably more similar to Jack Harrison from a Leeds perspective than you'd believe without the goals and the assists. So very determined, sort of good work ethic. Um, But yeah, just um, so going back to Chris's actual question then. So some of the data before and after injury, this is this is actually quite interesting. So I think, first of all, let's just talk about Canos in terms of what we think he is. So Mm. he's a 
he's a winger. That's his primary position. He plays on the left. He sort of cuts in onto his right foot and you want him to get shots away. He sort of comes inside and gets involved in the attacking phases. Um, a lot of, I think, the abuse we're seeing sort of online and the questionings around him, some of it I think is actually quite just. So if you if you take out Ben Rama, sort of we're looking at a 25, sort of £30 million player and then you, you sort of plonk in Canos as a replacement, hmm. there are going to be a few eyebrows raised um, and that's probably a bit of angst at the, the whole model as well sort of you buy a player for cheap you sell him for a lot of money you've sold him for 30 million why are you not buying a 20 million pound player instead of promoting mm. someone who's in the squad or or why are you buying three or four players at three four million and sort of buffering out the squad in that way we want something shiny to replace what we've lost and mm. there's a little bit of a sort of disconnect in what people want and what they're seeing so I, I think a little bit of the angst towards him uh, does come from that a bit of frustration with the model but just going back to his um just going back to his output so if we think of him as a left winger what do you what do you really want from a sort of wide forward you're looking for goals you're looking for assists you're looking for chance creation and those things are just not really there with Sergi so he hasn't actually had a goal involvement since uh, September 2019 um two against Barnsley sort of two assists uh, which they're quite important we're sort of one nil down and he came um he came up to sort of set up a couple of Watkins goals and um, the game was wrestled back and we won 3-1. So it's quite a long time for him to sort of actually been involved in goals. How many games has he played since then? Just out of uh, He's played um, around 20 games since then. So it's not quite a full season, but he has um, he has featured. So, uh, yes, it had sort of... So 20, games, not, without a, 20 yeah. games without a goal involvement. Yeah, so it might be a bit more on the goals, on the games than that, but it's around that sort of figure. Um hmm. Um, but yeah, so just to answer Chris's question, I'll try and get a bit more direct on it now. But um, let's go back to sort of season eighteen nineteen, which is probably Sergi Canis's most productive season. So uh, he played over 2,000 minutes this year. He got seven goals and seven assists. Um, and for a wide forward, that's that's pretty impressive. Um, he had 89 shots. And that's not too bad either. I think that's that's quite impressive. And I think he averaged around 0.15 XG per shot. So that's that's quite a good average. 38% of those were on targets uh, and uh, expected assists. He was around 4.3. So the quality of chances he actually created working backwards on InfoGoals model there. So it's a pretty good season. I think internally, maybe someone said to him, let's get to double figures in goals and assists. But seven isn't bad. So that's a good contribution. But that's his greatest so far. Um, if we go to season 1920, so this is last year. So if we think about how this season finished for Brentford, Brentford got to the playoff final. It was their best ever finish to a season in years. Uh, I can't even remember how long it is. I think it's sort of 50, 60 years. So he started that season playing in the left wing position. Was, ben Rama was injured and Sergi Canos played. And uh, it was it was kind of typical Sergi Canos. So I think this is how we have to understand him. So... He'll get chances and uh, he's not clinical at finishing these chances. So his season was kind of strange and COVID helped him out a bit here. So he played 11 games at the beginning of the season. And uh, within those games, this is where he sort of missed a big chunk of chances. And this is where his sort of XG was inflated a little bit. He produced about 2.93 XG from 32 shots. So averaging about 0.9 a shot. So there's a little bit of drop away from the season before, not much. But out of those shots, he hit the target 77% uh, of the time. So 32 shots, seven times, sorry, 22% on target, which is, it's not great. I mean, it's not bad, but it's not exceptional. And he created about XA, exit assists, about 2.76. So from the season prior, we're seeing a bit of a drop off to his output this season, uh, sorry, last season. And then he actually got quite severely injured. So he was, 
well everyone thought he was ruled out for a year so he wasn't going to play so he played his 11 games he missed a a huge chunk of the season and if we think about what happened to Brentford during that time Brentford probably turned into the best team that they'd ever been the system was really sort of secure Uh, Norgard played almost every minute Ben Rama Watkins were playing out of their skin they were playing for big moves and the run that the team went on without Sergi Canos the team has obviously gone on to another level so he actually, well, when football ended in March and sort of cut out for the lockdown, he benefited from that because he had a chance to heal. And then he came back uh, for the sort of low run-in. He made about sort of 20-minute appearances here and there in the run into the playoffs. And because of how much the team improved and sort of the aesthetics of everything and the system we spoke about with the question prior, Sergi Canos comes in and he is not as intricate as Ben Rama. He isn't quite as precise in the box. He's not scoring. His shot locations are a little bit wayward. And you kind of start to see that what, how is he getting in the team? So we'll give him the benefit of the doubt he was recovering from a serious injury. And then let's move into this season where we've got nine games now. So we're about a fifth of the way through the season. Um, he's generated 1.4 XG from 18 shots. So he's on 0.05 per shot. Of those 18 shots, he's hit the target twice. So that's not looking great either. So he's down to 10%. Um, and he's created 1.04 expected goals. So there's just a clear drop-off in what he's actually doing in terms of output. So this is quite just basic to look at sort of shots and assists. But it's not... You can kind of see why people are questioning what's why is he in this team. He's a left winger. And then um, something else that's quite interesting as well, I thought, was... If he's not sort of providing output, if he's not really providing goals and assists and the other that responsibility is being deferred onto other players in the team, what, why is he in the team? And then if you sort of look at something like progressive runs, you, you kind of get a glimpse at what benefits he's bringing the team because it's not his output. We know it's not that. So there must be, if we think of football clubs as big data warehouses for players, they have huge amounts of information on these players. And for him to sort of continually be getting in the team, there must be something he does right. And just a quick look at sort of progressive runs per 90 last year on Scout's number. He's um, he's actually the highest for Brentford at 3.26 per 90. So progressive runs are determined by sort of how much they take the ball up the pitch, whether it's in their own third or whether it's in the middle third. But he's averaging 3.26 per 90. And Ben Rama was second. And if we move into season 2021 this season, he's actually the second highest for Brentford, just behind Justice Silva with uh, 2.3 per 90. So you can see he's carrying the ball forward, which is something you need to happen. It's it's not something to take for granted. The ball has to get into the final third. So a little bit more context, we can see that he's he is bringing the ball forward into better positions and other people are maybe responding with um, better output. But it's also... The other key highlight with Sergi is Statsbomb's pressure data. So, yeah, James York's been kind enough to uh, sort of reveal this here. So you, Statsbomb's data on the Premier League is is widely accessible now, but for the Championship is a little bit more elusive. So another way to look at Sergi in the context of how well he's doing is he's actually putting through 21 pressures per game. So the pressures on Statsbomb are sort of looking at how much a sort of a player, if it gets five yards with an opponent on the ball, what are they doing to sort of disrupt them or move the ball on or give the ball away and how close they're sort of putting them under pressure, basically. And Sergi Canos is completing 21 of these per game, which is the fourth highest in the league. And it's actually the first for Brentford. So looking at the output for Sergi isn't really finding the answer of how he's getting into the team. It's sort of when you dig in a little bit further that he's the best presser for the team. He's clearly a really good sort of person, sort of defensive-wise, chasing down the ball and uh, putting the opponent under pressure, which is something you need in uh, football today. And 
yeah, he's he's just a he's just a really effective defensive minded player, and that's probably where the frustrations lie between the the reality of what he is and compared to to what he actually produces in his output, and that's where the difficulties come between why is he getting in the team and should someone else be given a go. So I hope that answers it a little bit. <laughs> I've gone a little bit there. Yeah, I guess my question would be then, how do you see? Canos fitting in the team then if you do if you I mean he's he's obviously playing as as a as a presser um but playing as a presser as a left-sided fr- member of the front three is is different from being a presser and playing somewhere else in the field so um I know I know you've <laughs> talked about maybe making Sergi Canos into into a sort of a latter-day Stuart Dallas um, I wonder <laughs> if you could maybe expand on that a little bit yeah I think this is this has cropped up a little bit now in sort of discussions and circles but Something I'm quite big on. I think noticed this a couple of seasons ago with his with his output. You can kind of tell that he has a, he has skills, he has strengths which are sort of defensive pressure, um, his athleticism, um, uh, sort of his concentration, uh, how much he sort of can track players. And I, I think this is what I'd put back with you. So we had obviously Stuart Dallas before he signed for Leeds, and um, what was clear with Stuart is he could score a couple of worldies, but intricate systems and sort of setting up players and technique you don't really want him on the end of the final ball before someone's about to shoot or or he's going to shoot himself so Bielsa's looked at this and it's just he has played left back before but a focus on sort of a more defensive position seemed logical and I think a similar thing's happened with Sergi but what, what would you say to the sort of progression of Dallas and can you see similar similar things yeah Dallas is an interesting one isn't he I think in our system he works quite well he's um I think he's he's. I mean, the, the thing that Bielsa loves about Dallas is that he's tactically smart. You you he can get Dallas playing in these fairly complex systems where he'll be playing as a sort of inverted wing back who then has to drop into um, left back areas out of uh, possession or on on in transition phases and stuff. Um, he's also remarkable. Well, he's he's also remarkably useful in our in our build up play. Right, we build mm. up through the fullbacks and we um we build up through ailing and and um and dallas engaging in those sorts of when the rotation sort of works its way around and the central midfielder comes across and he he just plays that quick ball and receives it again does the overlapping run as well he's he's really smart in that respect there are frustrations with dallas which are born of the fact that as you said you know he's not the most technically brilliant player and so in the premier league if you if you get him coming up against someone who has his measure, then he can start to look very average. And um, we've had games this season where we've just not been able to build up because he hasn't been good enough to to do that. But um, I guess the question for me, well, for you would be, I mean, you've got Rico Henry as a as a left back. Where where else would Canos fit in the team? Mm. I, I guess that's what I'm struggling to where where I struggle to see him fitting in. Um, maybe if you were playing like a four four two system or a system where he's he's sort of playing as as um, a, like an outside midfielder then mm. maybe but um, I don't see you guys playing that unless he plays as a wing back in a 3-4-3 three, three, I suppose ah there you go so that's the one so I think that's his I, I, I probably think that's if he wants to make it as an elite player and sort of really progress then it's that right wing back position where mm. some of that defensive responsibility isn't there and he's picking up the ball and the first phase of passes is made for him and it comes to him and his role is to sort of those progressive runs just bringing the ball into the final third and before you know it sort of Brentford are on the attack in in the final third and um yeah that's that's kind of where I see the natural progression for him and defensive pressure is really important there he'll sort of block that that entire right side so 
like Dallas in the sense of t- converting him into an effective fullback, but not on the left side. I think that right side where he would be um, a real asset with sort of his strengths, because his strengths are his athleticism, as I just said, and his weaknesses are sort of the accuracy, the the sort of intricacy of short passing build up. I'm probably being a bit harsh in sort of some of the chances he creates, but it's his shooting is not good enough really for this kind of level. And if you're thinking about seriously sort of making a dent on a division, it's not really any coincidence that some of Brentford's best ever play came when he was injured, and especially in the attacking phases. So it's um, I think we're looking at it quite objectively. I think you just look at his sort of strengths and weaknesses, and being such a being his qualities being defensive, then why are we not thinking about sort of making mm. him a defensive first player? Because the team does need it. Mm. So then would you, in a 3-4-3, three, three, would you play Dalsgaard as the outside right centre-back then? Yeah, definitely. So I think that's his calling as well. A little bit less responsibility in terms of getting up and down the field. Um, he can sit more. Um, he's played that position previously. Uh, I think if he wants to get a num- another three years out of his career, I'm not sure whether that would be at Brentford, but... I'd suggest that that's where he moves into a back three where he just has to sort of push and run for a little bit and then commit a, commit the next line and then he'll just play it off outright or, or outright sorry or through the centre. Um, mm-hmm. Him getting up and down the wings and sort of continually putting crosses in and getting shots as like the spare man or an outside right player isn't going to be his future. So yeah, that, that, this is the secondary system we're talking about. It should really consist of Dalsgaard dropping into the back line and maybe Sergi being on the right, and then you can get in Godos and Mbwemo into the team at the same time. So the mm. fundamentals are there, um, whether whether Frank and whether the club see it in the same way. I think they probably have similar discussions, and maybe Sergi just doesn't want to play there, and you can't just force a player to do what they don't want. But again, I think, like Dallas, I think he listens to instructions well, and I think he is that kind of player. He needs to be told where to play, what to do. And that kind of flexibility in the final third isn't really... That's more sort of intuitive, and I think the movements and patterns they develop are not really suited to, to him. Hmm. Well, that's October sorted. We're looking forward now. We're in November, so we're looking forward to the, the month going forward. Um, you've got to get through to the next international break. You've got fixtures against Swansea at home and Borough away. How are you feeling about November? Well, November is here, isn't it? It's um, no sooner has October been sort of put to bed and November <laughs> turns up. It's as you'll remember last year, the championship is just a relentless game after game slog, and uh, you. Come I'm up- exhausted just looking at your schedule. It's just, <laughs> I can't believe that you've played four games in something like fourteen days or something. It's yeah, mad. it's it's crazy. It's it really is crazy. So I think the the international breaks are a relieved break in terms of sort of a breather but there are players that go off and play international football now more than probably we've had previously so um, the big games against Swansea and Borough so Borough are actually sort of quite high in the form table actually looking at October but it's not quite underpinned I mean there's a they're, they're likely to sort of concede a lot more so I wouldn't have thought that would continue but Swansea are um, so if we think about who Brentford played in October they've played a good variety of teams now they've played sort of possession based teams teams that will sit deep um, teams that play a sort of a back three back four so there's a good variety and Swansea are, are probably the only type of team that they sort of haven't played yet where they do have a, a sort of back three system but it's possession based and they work their way out the pitch well so Swansea's probably going to be quite a difficult game um, by the time this goes out the Swansea result may, might be known so it's a tough challenge Swansea welcoming them at home and then Borough as well always tight games as well with a, a Warnock side so Keeping your heads above water before the international break is paramount. Um, 
if we sort of pick up four points from those two games, then it will be viewed as a really, really sort of good period. And uh, I think if that is the case, Brentford will be looking a lot higher at the table than, than they are now. Well, David, we've made it to the end of the first Beast Tactical podcast. How are you feeling? We have. Uh, well, yeah, pretty relieved, actually. It's gone quite well, hasn't it? I, I think it has. Um, mm. Yeah. How have you enjoyed it? What's, yeah, uh, no, what's I... your sort of overriding thoughts? Always enjoy talking about Brentford, and there's also many interesting things to talk about with Brentford. So, uh, hopefully, we've managed to get through all of the, the topics we had to get through uh, with, without dragging on too much. But I'm, I'm pretty sure we did we did that. So, um, just a few housekeeping things for your listeners. Thank you again for all of your questions; they are very much appreciated. Do send in uh, questions when we do this again next month. Um, in the meantime, if you could share the bees tactical page. Um, which is, uh, you can find it at the Twitter handle, at Obese Tactical. Uh, make sure you're subscribed to the Substack page as well, um, which is beastactical.substack.com. And, of course, subscribe to the Patreon as well, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash beastactical. So beastactical is the watchword. If you put that into these various social media platforms, you will uh, find them. Um, and do... Give us reviews wherever you get your podcasts from as well. That will be helpful. Uh, but until then, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from David. Um, David, thanks very much for, for chatting to me. No problem at all. Thanks very much, guys. Hope you've enjoyed it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.